This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. The end of October draws near, and with it comes Halloween, though 2020 has been such an all-round horror show that it seems pretty unnecessary this year. The occasion does, however, give us a chance to delve into something we've not talked about before on this podcast, Japanese ghost stories, of which there are many. Ghosts in Japan are known as yurei. The kanji yu and rei literally translate to dim or faint spirit, and tales of them have been passed down through the centuries via old rituals such as the hyakumonogatari kaidan, which translates to a gathering of 100 supernatural tales. One of the most knowledgeable people of these stories is author Teresa Matsura, who's been tracking down and translating many of these spooky tales for her podcast Uncanny Japan, which explores all that is weird from old Japan. Strange superstitions, folk tales, cultural oddities, and urban legends. Let me play a quick clip from her most recent episode, and beware, in case you're getting ready for bed alone and frightened easily, it is a little bit spooky. Do you believe in ghosts? Let's go one further. Have you ever seen a ghost? Maybe you're sitting alone in a room, concentrating on a book or a screen, and out of the corner of your eye, someone walks by. A shadowy figure. Your heart hitches in your chest. You look up, but nobody's there. You look behind you, no one. Yet you're absolutely sure someone just passed by. It sends shivers down my spine. In the second half of this episode, Teresa will be reading us one of the full versions of her bedtime ghost stories, her version of the tale of Okiku and the Nine Plates, one of Japan's three most famous ghost stories. But first, Teresa joins me in conversation to tell us where her fascination with Japanese ghost stories came from and how her superstitious mother-in-law first brought them to life for her. Teresa Matsura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So Japan has a long history of ghost tales and they've fascinated many writers who've lived and visited Japan. Mm. Japanese ghost tales were one of the favourite subjects of writers such as Lafcario Hearn. He introduced many of Japan's ghost tales in translation in his book Kwaidan way back in 1904. More recently, Anthony Bourdain put out a Japanese ghost-themed recipe book in 2018. And many of your own stories and podcasts are influenced by Japanese horror stories. So what is it? about the Japanese supernatural and ghost tales that first attracted you to them? Ooh, good. So when I first came to Japan, it was back in 1990, so this is like pre-internet. Um, I came, I studied for a couple of years, decided to stick around, got married, moved to this smallish town, and I was thrown into life with my mother-in-law, who was very superstitious, and... Everything And also, actually, the town where I lived, or, yeah, I still live, is Lafcario Hearn. He used to spend a lot of time here. And so it was always kind of buzzing around me. Um, I've got this theory that in the West, we kind of have this line that separates the other world, the, you know, after we die, and then this world where we're alive. But in Japan, it kind of, 
there's not really a line. <laughs> like my mother-in-law would talk about spirits or, oh, you know, I have a, I have a clingy spirit on my back today. And it was just very mind-blowing. So, <laughs> again, no internet. So, I go to the library and I just study this stuff. I'm like, what is she talking about? What does all this mean? And from there, it was, um, yeah, I got, I've got to introduce this to other people because it's so wonderful and strange. <laughs> so, what did your mother-in-law mean when she said you're sticky or that she's got a clingy ghost stuck to her back or whatever? <laughs> what was she talking about? What is she talking about? Exactly. That's what I thought. Um, so she taught me that um, some people are more sticky than other people. I'm a very sticky person, evidently. Uh, she's not so much. But sticky people, like just ghosts, there's ghosts everywhere. There's spirits and there's good ones and there's bad ones. And sticky people will go places and they'll get these ghosts on them and they'll you know, like bring illness or or just, you know, you'll have nightmares, whatever. There, there's something will happen because of that. So she was convinced that I had all these ghosts on me. And um, at one point she actually, yeah. Was that, was that news to you at the time? It was, um, at the time I thought, oh, that's cool. I'm like, I'm special. I have ghosts. But then the more she talked about it, the more it wasn't a good thing. You have to get rid of those things. She's very superstitious. So if anything bad would happen, it would be me, right? It's like, oh, oh, it's because Terry's sticky that this, this, you know, that grandpa got sick or something. I was like, wait a minute, that's not fair. And also I was so alone at the time that I had to deal with this. I would, that's why I do the research and I kind of had to like, write the stories just to get it out. So um, even in my neighborhood at the time, we had all these elderly people living around and um, they would, um, yeah, they, they were, they, they all had their, their stories and uh, I wrote a lot of stories about them to kind of, um, what's it called, exercise these, <laughs> these bad feelings, not bad feelings, but make sense of things, I guess. So it was a pretty tough induction to the world of Japanese ghost stories by the sounds of it. Mm, it's gotten better. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, so Japan has a long history of ghost stories in literature and in folklore. But is there any real indication of when ghost stories started being told in Japan? To me, ghosts in any culture is kind of like from the beginning of time, like when we started telling stories like that, this was a natural, especially in Japan. The more I read about old Japan and the andon, the, the oil lamps they had, and they have these paper doors and all the shadows and just how dark everything was. Um... Uh, like the, the paper doors I'm looking at, at a shoji paper door and, you know, they get holes in them. That just happens. Naturally, you get a hole. You know, something, someone throws something, there's a hole in it and it's torn. And then at night and you have the shadows and then there's actually a ghost, their eyes, and they look through the holes at night. And I just thought that would be so easy to imagine, right? You know, it's dark, you know, it's cold, you're alone. You've got these little lamp, flickering lamps and you look over and maybe somebody did look in or whatever. But they have all these, um, I think it was just a way, I think, to make sense of the world around them, like things were happening and they couldn't explain them, so it would be a ghost. Oh, your leg hurts. There you go. It's a ghost. You, got, you know, there's. You have to explain something some way. At least, I think so. According to the mythology, then how how do ghosts in Japan actually come into being? Is it the same concept of a trapped soul that never quite leaves Earth for whatever reason? Yeah, it feels the same that way. A person passes on and for some reason or another, they don't make it to the other side. The funeral services here are very um, ritualistic. There's a lot of things that need to be done before the funeral, during the funeral, after the funeral, days after, months after, a year after. You have to keep doing these things. You have butsudan, altars in the house, and again, you do offerings 
usually every day, especially on special occasions like Obon or New Year's. So yeah, there's that that um, presence there. Someone passes away, their soul doesn't go. You have to kind of keep them on the other side. If there is some kind of anger or jealousy or wrathfulness or something, then the soul will stay on this side and like hang out and either get its vengeance or find someone to stick to or uh, some are supposed to just stick to spots and they'll just be there forever and ever until they realize they're dead. So is this all rooted in Buddhist tradition and Buddhism then? Buddhism, also before Buddhism got here, because Buddhism came in you know, from China later. Um, there's a lot of overlap, but there's Buddhism, there's also the Shintoism, and they also have their thing with spirits. Everything has a spirit. So Shintoism is you know, animistic. Everything, you know, rocks, trees, rivers, of course, people, animals, we all have souls. And... Um, the same thing, you know, they do they do rituals to appease the souls. So it's kind of all mixed together. Japan's such a long history. It's lovely how that happens. It's just this big potpourri of traditions and thoughts and beliefs that come out. The kind of generic word for ghost in Japanese is yure, which translates to dim spirit or faint spirit. But there are actually many different types of ghosts in Japanese stories, right? Such as Shugore, Hyore, Onryo. So what are the, the differences between these types of ghosts? Yes, so Shugore would be like a protecting, like a guardian spirit. Um, so there's there's the good ghosts that so goes on. There's, there's animal ghosts. Um, there's ghosts that are connected to certain just places. Local tale, near my house, there's a mountain pass a girl was crossing, I guess a young lady was crossing the road in the middle of the night, got hit by a car. Um, her spirit kept coming back, evidently. There was always flowers out there. Finally, her parents spent uh, just a, a crap ton of money, and they built this bridge over it. There's nothing there. It's like there's absolutely no reason for there to be a bridge. But they built this overpass. And to this day, you know, you go at a certain hour, and you can see her walking across the, the bridge and stuff. So these ghosts will be there. I think they're, uh, what are they called? Jibakurde or something, and they, they actually stay to the, the place. So it'll be a waterfall, whatever, a tunnel. And then there's the onyo, which are vengeful, and they <laughs> they died, like, angry and uh, in a horrible way. They come back to get their revenge. And they're cool because um, they're actually able... It, seem, it always seems like ghosts really can't do much. They just kind of spook you and they, they move by. But these um, actually have the power to in some way cause a death <laughs> and oiwa would be or okiku of the nine plates there's three big ones in japan um yeah they're they're all uh, kind of onno vengeful spirits that come back and uh, exact their revenge and it's these stories of onno these vengeful spirits that have influenced a lot of japanese horror films mm-hmm. and characters <laughs> like sadoko from the ring and and kayako in the grudge yes and these stories, stories like The Ring and The Grudge are designed to scare the living shit out of you. But of the older ghost stories you've translated and studied, do they tend to be purely designed to scare or is there a more moral element to them, kind of horror parables? I think both, but there does seem to be a lot of moralistic tales in, in um, one of the big ones, and probably one of the first ones I heard about or saw on TV at least at old movie um, Yotsuya Kaidan Oiwa so she's this woman and, and the poor thing and she's you know she's been betrayed she's been cheated on she's poisoned and she's died she dies of course she comes back and she gets revenge but um, 
absolutely a moral tale, though. You know, this this man is just horrible to her, and the people around him who were horrible to her get theirs at the end. So there's quite a few like that. Even The Ring, right? Uh, new, mm. A newer tale. But it's kind of based on that old, uh, you know, this poor woman was thrown down a well, 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 and um, look what she did. <laughs> yeah, quite the mess. Um, do you have a favorite ghost story then? Mm-mm. Maybe it would be Oyua. Just because the more I've studied her, there's so many, there's a Novers, there's different no Kabuki, um, dozens of movies about Yotsuya Kaidan, and um, they're all a little bit different, but the initial, the bones of the story are so good that you can change mm. things and it still holds up. It's still really scary. And even to this day, I've been, she's got two shrines in um, Tokyo, and I went to both of them, and they're for act, a lot of actors go there. Um, and give offerings. So you go there and there's all these flowers and sake and all this stuff to her. Um, but even then, it says if you go there with a like a flippant heart, like just kind of out of fun, that you're going to be cursed, right? So even today, it's like, I was so, I'm like, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm going to bring an offering. I'm not going as a casual bystander. I really want to, you know, I'm really kind of fascinated with her. But I like mm. that even though that story is so old and it, is probably based on a real person, is what they say. It's changed through time. It's, it hasn't gotten any weaker. And even today, uh, it's kind of like, you just don't talk about her because, yeah, she doesn't like it and she'll come back and come after you. <laughs> it sounds like there's a real continued tradition of believing in ghosts and other superstitions in Japan. It's not mm. something that's completely faded away as people have moved to the cities and away from the countryside. I really think so. Um even I don't I haven't had TV in several years now, but I just remember, and I'm sure they're still going on, all the TV shows at night. People, you know, Shinne uh, Shashi. No, I took this picture, and there's something in it, or a video, or um, Japanese enemy. A lot of people just love that stuff, and there's there's always new ones coming out. Uh, urban myths, kind of based on ghostly things. There's still those are are being thought up and. Uh, before when I used to teach, you know, teenage girls are like, oh, there's this new thing that pops up on your computer and this ghost is going to come. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Or Hitori Kakurimbo is a, it's a, a kind of a ritual that you do when you're alone at the house with a bear, but it's terrifying. These kids thought it up and they do it on like those Nichan or whatever, and they do it live. So it's over the internet, but it's so spooky because you can't see somebody or they have their camera and it's in a dark room and you're like, oh, did I see something? So it's kind of funny how it's just evolved. But it's still just, they're just as scary, these stories and these tales and how wonderful, how good these kids are at making them up, making them pretty good stories. Yeah, so still around for sure. (laughs) There's a a semi-haunted expression in your eyes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying, I'm thinking of them. (laughs) The first time, the first time I read the one about the the bears, like playing hiding, hide and seek by yourself, I was reading it at night and I was just going through the, the chat and oh, this happened, this happened, and then, you know, you're supposed to bring, when you hide and you wait for the, the ghost to come find you or something, all these kids are doing it and they're talking and reading it as it goes through. Uh, oh my God, I forgot the water. You're supposed to have like sake and you, know, you take the sake and you hold it in your mouth and then you spit it or something. But this one person had forgotten the sake. And, oh no, you're, and then everyone's worried about this one girl in the closet and then I hear something and she hears something and then she opens it and then, oh, she tries to take a picture and then she's gone, like she's off the chat. And you're like, oh, what happened to this girl? And I'll, oh yeah, okay, they're playing a game, but that's brilliant. That is such a good story and it still haunts me to this day and everyone what happened to her oh maybe she got eaten by i don't know but yeah ghosts still work today mm-hmm.
Join us in the second half of the episode to hear one of Teresa's ghost stories after this quick message from one of our sponsors. This episode of Deep Dive is brought to you by Democrats Abroad, a volunteer organisation that helps Americans overseas vote. You've heard them sponsor this podcast before, but this is it. There's just one week to go until the election. And if you've not yet sorted your overseas ballot, this is your last chance to act. So if you're a US voter living abroad and didn't receive your absentee ballot yet, or afraid that the one you've sent won't arrive in time, you've got one last chance, an emergency backup ballot. Head to votefromabroad.org slash FWAB right now to learn how you can fill out and send in your backup ballot as per your state's guidelines. Votefromabroad.org slash FWAB makes the process simple and easy with a live chat box and voter assistance via Zoom if you need it. So if you still need to vote from overseas, go to votefromabroad.org slash FWAB. That link can be found in the show notes. Thank you. Welcome back to Deep Dive in this episode about ghost stories. For the second half of this episode, we're going to feature a story by Teresa Matsura, her retelling of one of the most popular of Japan's ghost stories, Okiku and the Nine Plates. The story is said to have taken place at Himeji Castle in Hyogo Prefecture, one of Japan's most famous tourist landmarks, a UNESCO heritage site, and where you can still see Okiku's well. This story also inspired the classic Japanese horror film Ringu, remade as The Ring in 2002. I'll be back at the end of the story, but for now, tuck up tight, turn off the lights, and enjoy Teresa's story. Mukashi, Mukashi, long, long ago, a new servant joined the throng of so many others working and tending the samurai families who lived in the shadow of Himeji Castle. Her name was Okiku, which meant chrysanthemum, and she was special for two reasons. First, that she had an interesting face, maybe not one that you could call beautiful, but one that made you want to look at it for longer than might be deemed proper. And two, that she had come from the far countryside where she had recently lost her entire family to pestilence. Only she had survived. With no experience or prior training, Okiku entered this new world, alone, afraid, but with the absolute conviction she would do her best to serve her master and his family. She would start a new life. Her master's name was Tessan Aoyama, a favorite of the daimyo. He had just recently lost another one of his servant women and needed a replacement. Okiku dared not ask why this servant had been lost or why he chose her. She was only grateful for the chance to start again. The day she arrived, Okiku's breath was taken away by the ethereal beauty of the castle that stood brilliant white against the deep blue sky, seemingly floating on clouds of pale pink cherry trees in full blossom. Okiku felt it indeed lived up to its name, the White Heron Castle. Her new life was hard, though, harder than it had ever been farming the rice fields in the country with her family. Here the rules were many, the way of speaking, acting, a single shifting of a hand or a movement of the eye held a deep meaning that could earn her a beating if she wasn't careful. Okiku did not complain, though. She watched the other servants, listened, and learned. Despite the difficult life, 
There was one thing she looked forward to every day. It was her job to awake before dawn and shuffle up the hill through the maze of winding streets to the large well that sat in the middle of the castle's courtyard. There she would stand, shivering, and gaze up at the marvelous sight as the night fell away and the pearl-white walls rouged pink with the morning light. After filling her buckets, she would bow deeply to the glowing castle and hurry back home. The days passed, the weeks, months. Okiku worked diligently, and while she made fewer and fewer mistakes, she still found it difficult to fit in with the other servants. There was always some emotion in the way. She guessed it was born from the fact that their master, Tesson, treated her differently than the others. He often had her perform tasks that a more experienced servant should have been chosen to do. Okiku had no choice but to carry out the work he had asked, but increasingly she felt nervous in the pit of her stomach. More than once she had felt the weight of Tesson's stare on her back. Finally, when she thought she could bear it no longer, Tesson found her alone and made clear his intentions. Okiku understood her position, but she respected the others and Tesson's family. She shook her head and bowed a quick exit. Okiku's days continued, monotonous except for the early morning treks onto the castle grounds. In the following months, Tesson approached her two more times with his offer. But still Okiku refused, exalting his nature and humbling herself. She cleverly avoided his advances and hoped it would all be forgotten soon. But it wasn't. The samurai became moody and disagreeable, even to his most loyal of servants, who began talking in hushed tones and finding more fault with Okiku. The tensions in the house grew once again until Okiku felt she was being pushed into a tight corner. The servants resented her and the attention she got from their master. Tesan seethed that he could not win her heart. Still, Okiku drew water from the well, prepared meals, washed, swept, mended, and every night before shutting her eyes to fall into a dreamless slumber, she prayed that the next day might be easier, that there was some solution to this problem. Then something changed. The weather grew piercingly cold and everyone moved quicker and more purposefully cleaning and readying for the new year. Tessan's mood grew buoyant. He announced he was going to have a gathering in his home come the new year, inviting many important samurai and their families. He gave every one of his servants special jobs to perform before the big day. Okiku's task was to unpack his most prized possessions, the priceless Dutch china plates he would use to serve his guests. She was to clean every piece meticulously before wrapping them in pieces of red silk to wait their use. Okiku was nervous. She had heard rumors of these priceless dishes and how no one had ever seen them. They were so precious and hidden away. When the day came... She knelt down in front of the fragrant Hinoki wooden chest, untied the braided ropes, and removed the dishes one by one. Ten white porcelain plates with glazed blue floral designs so intricate you could get lost in them. But Okiku was careful. She did as she was told and replaced the ten plates wrapped in links of fresh crimson silk to the chest, bound it once more, 
and went off to the kitchen to scrub and cut vegetables for the evening meal. It was only after she had finished washing the rice and was drying her hands when she heard a shout. It was Tessan calling her name. Okiku hurried to the room where she had left the heirloom plates. Tessan stood above the open wooden chest, the cords strewn about the floor, the top removed. Why are these not tied up? he demanded. But they had been, Okiku thought. She couldn't speak. Instead, she fell to her knees beside the chest and looked inside. The plates were there, but the cloth had been disturbed. She removed them one at a time, slipping off the silk and counting. Ichimai, Nimai, Sammai, Yomai. She placed each one on the straw mat floor, lined up so Tessan could see. Gomai, Rokumai, Nanamai, Hachimai. Eight plates. Something was wrong. At the bottom of the box rested the last plate. Kumai. Nine. Not ten. Okiku looked around the room quickly, as if it were there somewhere nearby and she could find it. Maybe she had miscounted. She replaced the stack of plates and began counting again. Nine. Tessan's face grew red, his eyes wild. Have you stolen the plate? Have you sold it? Did you break it and hide it somewhere? N- no, no, Okiku stammered. Had someone else taken the plate? One of the other servants to punish her? Okiku counted again. Nine. When she reached nine for the third time, the fourth time, her eyes burned and tears fell down her cheeks. This was impossible. They were here. They were all here just a little while ago. Tessan's face suddenly changed. It grew into a wry smile. He fell to one knee, reached out and touched her shoulder. Okiku flinched. There is only one way I will allow this to pass. He needed her, and that need made him weak. Okiku looked into his eyes. She understood once again what he was asking. She felt dizzy and sick, so weary that she had no control of her life anymore. Nothing, not what she ate or drank, wore, or how she spent her days. What use was a life if it was not yours? Okiku straightened her back and wiped away her tears. She shook her head. No. Before Tessang could register the rejection, he heard a noise from the door. There were the other servants looking in, eyes wide, mouths gaping, or whispering behind their sleeves. Tessan removed his hand from Okiku's shoulder and stood. He had been seen in a moment of weakness. His face burned embarrassment, then rolled into anger. He could hear his blood screaming in his ears. His vision grew dark. He bellowed at the servants to move, grabbed Okiku by the hair and dragged her down the hall and outside. The servants followed at a distance. More people gathered. Is it in the well? He demanded. You are always spending too much time at that well. 
Tessan made her stand and then marched her all the way through the narrow streets to the castle's courtyard, shoved her to the edge of the well, pushed her head down and made her look inside. Black. Okiku took a deep breath. The air was like ice and cut into her chest. It smelled like metal. There was something else, though. Something warm. Moss. Her heart raced, but she felt strangely calm. She turned her head to look back. Not at Tesson or the gathered villagers who jostled each other excitedly. She looked up at the castle. She had never seen it from here at this time of the day. Dusk. The colors were different. Not pink, but deep orange and the vivid purple that stained her fingers as a child when she picked berries with her brothers, crushing a few on purpose so she could lick the sweet tart juice. Do you see it? Is that where you hit it? Okiku felt her body being lifted, the scrape of stone on her hip. She tried to resist, to fight back, but it was no use. She was already dead. Tessan had decided. The crowd had decided. What a wonderful place to die, she thought. So beautiful. In a final fit of rage, Tesson hurled Okiku into the well. There was the sound of something hitting stone, the splash of water, then nothing. The silence stretched for so long, too long. Tesson refused to look into the well. He stood indignant. Without a word, the crowd turned and left the horrible scene. Tesson stood numb, his anger spent. He was feeling something else, a different emotion he couldn't name. Alone, out of breath, sweat prickling his scalp and back, looming above him the great white castle glared, so many windows, black, judging. Tesson turned his back to the castle and reached inside his shirt. He withdrew something wrapped in blood-red silk. A clink. He unwrapped the object. It was the tenth plate. It had been whole when he had slipped it from the chest earlier. It must have broken in the scuffle. Tesson hurriedly rewrapped the pieces and stuffed them back inside his shirt. Later, he'd slipped them into Okiku's folded bedding for someone else to find. Tesson walked home not feeling strong at all, but defeated by a servant girl. Okiku woke. It was dark, her body disconnected and fluid. There was no more pain, just warm, moss warm. She looked up, moved up, up, up. There it was, magnificent, the moon rising beside the white heron castle. It was still low in the sky, not full yet, but large and golden like the tassels on the late autumn rice she used to harvest with her family. There was an instant where Okiku wanted to enjoy the view, appreciate it, but something twisted inside her, an icy sword, another memory crashing down upon her, the moon, the plate. It had to be there. She knew it had to be there. Just a little while ago, it was there. Okiku began to count the plates. Ichimai, Nimai, Sammai, Yomai, Gomai. 
She stacked the naked plates on the stony edge of the well. Rokumai, Nanamai, Hachimai. Something fluttered in her chest, then gripped like a fist on a handful of hair. Panic. There was only one plate left. Kumai. Okiku screamed. She screamed for everything she'd lost. Her mother, her father, her brothers, her farm, her old life, and her new one. The one that had never accepted her despite her trying so hard. She really had done her best. It just wasn't good enough. The damp, warm moss called her, and she slid back down. Maybe the tenth plate would be there tomorrow. That was Teresa Matsuura reading her telling of Okiku and the Nine Plates. My thanks to her for letting us use that recording and for joining us on today's episode. You can hear more from Teresa on her podcast, Uncanny Japan. I really recommend it. It's a great listen. If you want more Japan-inspired scares, check out Mark Schilling's list of Japan's 10 best horror films on the Japan Times website. That, of course, is linked in the show notes. That's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. If you are planning and able to go out for Halloween this weekend, please do wear a mask and not just the costume variety. You've made it pretty far through this episode, which gives me the sneaking suspicion that you might be enjoying Deep Dive. If that's the case, then I'm going to ask you to quickly take a moment to rate and review this podcast on whichever podcasting platform you use. If you're able to, it helps other people to discover this show. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. And as always, a huge Podskarisama. Podskarisama.